And hello and welcome to The Intersection of Things. A podcast that looks at how technology is changing our world from an intersectional feminist perspective. I am Marianela Ramos-Capello. And I'm Ruth Kustik deal And we're talking about cities. C- What's up, Ruth? I'm so excited about talking about this. Honestly, I have just got like so many thoughts. Well, let's start. Yeah, let's start. Gosh, where to begin? Basically, it seems if we're going to talk about tech and cities, we have to talk about smart cities. Before this happens, why is the intersection of things tackling cities? I mean, for me, it's obviously I live in a city. I live in a pretty massive one in London. And there's a lot of smart city technological developments that are being introduced, some of which seem interesting and exciting, and some of which I'm pretty concerned about and don't feel people are being consulted on or informed about. And inevitably, because it's me, I also have a lot of questions about consent. And as I started to dig into this and really kind of try and figure out what some of these things actually are and what they're doing, I started getting really, really interested in cities and urbanism and placemaking as concepts and just generally very interested in city design. Um, On top of that, whenever we have conversations about place, you always have really interesting insights. So I can't wait to hear what you have to say. I mean, for me, and we've, we've quoted this in the podcast before, but like there was this line in one paper by Michael Vaughn that said that like human rights are not inherent to the body because whenever you are navigating different spaces like spaces at the border or like public spaces in the city it is the law that affects the city that really gives you your rights so i was very interested to see how technology is part of that policing of space and how technology and all of this smart stuff that we have around us is helping shape behavior culture through the shaping of space so enter cities. Yeah, I think I had never ever heard of the field of urban anthropology before last year, but once I discovered it, I was so fascinated by exactly that, how the place we're in changes how we behave. And there are so many interesting things about how we choose to place street lamps and how that creates security or not in different areas. And I yeah, I've just started going down this rabbit hole of being like I cannot believe I'd like never heard of this as a field, but now I'm so interested. Yeah, makes all the sense. It's also like that metaphor of the fish in water, right? Like because it's everywhere around us is kind of a challenge to think of it analytically because it feels like it's it's always been here, the whole city and built space. But really every every built thing, it's a decision and the, the built space, the built environment kind of embodies the values and the politics and the policies of the time so and we're yeah we're starting to see those policies and politics of the time embedded in in technology so that's i mean digital technology architecture is technology yeah and then if you're going to talk about like feminism in the context of cities then there's a lot of questions about who designs cities who designs everything around us and there's some really interesting facts about how like in the uk 90 percent of architects are still men yep. and then that makes me start really questioning things like wait if all our spaces are being designed by men what what does that mean like is a city really designed for women or not what would that look like well and then on top of that decision makers and people who run policies about the management of space 
also reflect this like remember that bit about nightmares and uh which is like a a political position or like a position in some city councils i don't know if barcelona has some where um someone is it's given the task to administer the night the nighttime recognizing that the city at night is a different space with different flows of people with different communities so for example the party people also the night shift workers and you need to attend to those populations and their needs in a different way that you would attend people in the daytime you know the nine to fivers and the kids and so who is the night mayor for example just to play that as a uh, as a metaphor will also determine what the night life in the city looks like and if you're a woman you'll have very different considerations given that we live in this patriarchal society <laughs> so yeah it's super exciting just to tackle this whole thing as you can tell listeners we're like so into this so Uh, let's go right in. Smart city. What's a smart city? I mean, I've done all this reading and what I find interesting is that nobody can actually agree what a smart city is, but they can agree that there are lots of smart city projects. And those seem to be all different kinds of things that are relating to putting internet connected stuff into spaces or using civic technology essentially. So like some examples are free Wi-Fi in public parks or um, like auto paying on your phone for parking spaces or environmental sensors that detect CO2 levels, smart meters in people's homes, like a lot of different things. In fact, what I find really interesting is that if you had asked me maybe two weeks ago if London was a smart city, I would probably have said like, oh, maybe a little bit. I guess we have Oyster cards, which are the cards that we use to tap in and out of buses and underground. But now that I've looked at how many different things we have, I'm just like, well, is it? But nobody says it is for sure. It's just we have a lot of tech. Did I know about it? No. It's like a datafied space. Yeah. And a lot of it involves private companies being put in charge of city developments. But not all of it. Sometimes it's city councils building and developing things. Yeah, well, here in Canada, we had, still going on, this project by Sidewalk Labs, which is a sister company of Google, and it's taking place in Toronto, not the entire city, but like this space in the waterfront, so waterfront Toronto. And what they wanted to do was take a piece of land and almost run it as as this little experimental place where they were going to build a proto-city, again, all Google-ified, so like, you know, the site, like literally the sidewalks would have some sensors, like it would just be like everything would be connected and managed through the this ideal of the quote-unquote smart connected city. Um, so imagine Google basically being the, the city council. And it got interesting. I don't know, have you heard about this? I've I've heard about it. It seems to have involved a lot of drama in the last year or so. Well, there were a few points of that. Of course, this the city was being sold as, not sold literally, but as in marketed with all the typical tropes of the smart technology, right? Like driverless cars or safer office spaces that are super smart, so environmentally friendly and lights are connected and like all of these health and tech sensors everywhere, including private spaces, because this space was also intended to have 
private homes hmm. connected as well. So there were a few controversies around this. The first one, obviously, or not the first one, but one of the bigger ones is how the hell can a company, it's basically essentially a Google-like company, have the authority to create a city? You know, what does it take for governance to be transferred from the democratic sort of stuff that we know into the private so basically now a private company will play mayor and council and so that was one thing so the governance aspect of it the development of it apparently they tried to run consultations but they were already doing work on the city so really then why would the consultations be held if you're not going to take it into consideration hmm. obviously there were a lot of privacy issues because a city that's basically sucking up data well it's quantifying you at all times and who's going to have that data what is it going to be used for who has access to this city you know is it is it going to be one new privileged people only space you know th it, and those questions were not answered clearly they were just like don't worry we'll have policy everything will be fine so yeah i'm not sure where the project is at now i can recommend uh there's a canada land episode on just this they spent like an hour just talking about this debacle i recommend it shout out to canada land really good podcast but yeah so it's happening uh, so there's a smart city that that you mentioned like the one that's little by little happening like london you know with embedding things here and there probably embedding s stuff by multiple companies and then there's also the unified one company only yeah. smart city which is what uh, waterfront toronto was attempting to do yeah and i think they're quite different i mean what intrigues me slash you know worries me about the sidewalk labs slash google owned space is like, what is the boundary on that? If you looked at all of it and you said, you know what, not for me, I don't want to go into that area. Is there like a thing where you cross a threshold and then you have to say like, now I'm in this this space. Do you, do you have a, the kind of thing where you go on the internet and it says, by landing on our website, you agree to our terms and conditions for cookies? Is it like, if, if you cross a little line, then now you, you give your physical cookies? Like, how does yeah. that work? Well, and also this whole thing of like, what if at some point I need to have a, an appointment with my doctor and my doctor happens to be there? You know, what's really the agency of me saying, oh, actually, I have to change doctors because your office is in sidewalk labs territory. Like how feasible it is for me to exercise my right to say no or consent when when it's just going to be part of the built environment yeah and like it seems inevitable that it will turn into targeted ads like i mean they're going to use that kind of data on what people are doing in the space to target people with adverts in the space well and that's that's the the marketing side of it but like the other side of it is like if your home is being quantified um i can tell whether you've been sleeping well or not you know, I can tell whether you're at home or not, whether you're working or not. And that is, that's very useful information to infer things about your health, about your mental state, about your economic ability, about your relationships with other people, who's visiting you, when, you know, and it's, I don't know, I think it's, it's very important to know who has access to this data and for what. Yeah. And it makes me think about, like, you know, the distribution of power. It is quite interesting that they trusted 
a company who are one of the biggest in the entire world with the power over a space. Yeah. Well, and then there's also that whole thing of like, who is writing the law and the policy? So all of a sudden we have this entity that's an international entity, like Sidewalk Labs, which is owned by Alphabet, which is a parent company of Google. And of course, they're not just bound to Canadian law. They're they're an international company. So we have another tension right there in terms of governance of who who are they going to be responding to? Reminds me a little bit of like when the Olympics come to your town. There are like the multi-million or billion dollar contracts include um, special allowances for the the Olympics to to do certain things that are or would not be legal otherwise. And particularly, this happens in the area of surveillance and management of space. Oh, yeah. In in Vancouver, um, parts of the city just got completely CCTV'd, like surveilled when the Olympics came here. I think in in uh, in Brazil, when FIFA, this was, this was, was it the Olympics? I don't know which one of those two, but those two entities, the Olympics and FIFA in the World Cup soccer stuff, football, they have very similar <laughs> ways of operating, which is... If you want all of this money, you have to like modify your laws. And I think Brazil uh, did modify some of their laws in terms of free speech. Because before you could just enter a stadium, a publicly built, or a stadium built with public money and just protest. Now you would be asked to leave. Yep. Because I was against contract of this huge corporation. So this is not the first time that we're going to start seeing huge corporations have a say on yeah i mean on the law in london i remember there were really strict rules about what clothes you could wear to go to the olympics what yeah because one of those big sports brands and now i can't remember which one it was adidas or nike was sponsoring it and you weren't allowed to go into the olympics area wearing the rival sports brand because they are just like will we own the copyright for this area And so they would, like, if anyone did, they would blur it out. But people were literally asked to change their shirts or wear their shirts inside out for having, like, rival branding in the space. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, it's like, the Olympics are a whole other episode, but they are so, like, weird for everything that happens. I mean, I found it so fascinating because I was working um, at the time at Open Rights Group. I'm just going on a, on a little Olympics tangent here. And I remember yeah. in the build-up, how many times in the office we would share some kind of weird story about the way copyright was being enforced in the Olympics. Like a butcher who'd made Olympic rings in their window out of sausages being told they had to take that down because that's, you know, the the infringement of the Olympic copyright. Like you, you can't yeah. honour the games. You couldn't, like words like gold were not allowed to be used by brands during that time period. Yeah, we had, I remember, a um, story about tattoo artists uh, here not being able to sell or to make tattoos. You know how they can put the flash, the drawings on the windows. And Olympics just bring tourism so or and athletes. So they want to celebrate. They want to get the Olympic rings tattooed somewhere. They could not do it, at least not legally, or they would face uh, copyright infringement penalties. It's so weird. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's a, it's a side point. And and there are many yeah. good things about the Olympics. I I do love the way everyone like kind of comes together, and I feel like it was one of the best times. I look back on it very nostalgically in other ways, but the corporate side of it, not so good. Well, it's a spectacle, right? Like the actual definition of 
that was that guy the board or whatever that says like spectacle is like a thing that acts as a total justification for things being the way they should be and that feel good cohesion and like society coming together and everybody's kind of in this high acts as a justification for like yeah let's do this because we're gonna be safer and it's okay to have people with machine guns on the street. I mean, police. Well, people had to put because... rocket launchers on the roof of their houses, like missile launchers. That was another weird thing that happened in London. Everyone's like, ah, oh, well, I guess for safety. Yeah. Oh, God. But, you know, that's space. Built space and controlled space for you people um, and for us. Anyways, but, okay, Ruth, so there's the, the million-dollar question. And million dollars aren't worth that much anymore, so low-key question. Uh-huh. <laughs> you cannot buy a house in Vancouver for a million dollars. Speaking of space. Um, million-dollar question, though. Like, So smart cities, people would just be like, oh, this is just part of progress. Uh, it's part of like making a neighborhood better. Enter gentrification and digital gentrification and this whole idea of bettering quote-unquote space what do you think about that oh god yeah you're right it's a big question i've been thinking about this and i have no strong answers i just have concerns i guess there's part of me that does definitely go with well maybe change is inevitable and maybe some of these things are really positive like isn't introducing technology that can detect co2 levels in a neighborhood and tell you if it's safe to go outside or not really good like that seems great but then there's another part of me that's like okay but telling a tech company to come along and like fix the problems in a neighborhood and like come in and decide what our community needs sounds like gentrification and it sounds like a big issue like for instance some of the things that i heard mentioned around sidewalk labs and i've also heard mentioned suggested in areas of london like automated robots that will collect rubbish does anyone need that like is that is that really an issue like isn't that just introducing robots because they sound fun and that seems like a problem. Like, who has the power to decide they just want shiny robots? I mean, and by gentrification, we are talking about a, this specific phenomenon, just to make our terminology clear first. I don't know how you would define it, but I think I would kind of take a stab at it by saying that gentrification is this like process of displacement that goes alongside capitalism and that's done under the premises of quote-unquote bettering the space or a neighborhood by introducing new businesses and new amenities that are marketed as improving well-being and life in general. But obviously it's a very um, charged term because, I mean, as you can tell, I opened my definition with the word displacement. And one of the biggest criticisms against the whole like gentrification phenomenon is that it is just a new form of colonization. It's basically people with power, money, political power, going into a neighborhood that doesn't have the power to defend itself and take over. Um, And when you start looking at space and neighborhoods as not only space, but like space has to have the people. If the people do not remain, then you're not bettering anything. You're just displacing or killing or just destroying is this whole idea it's almost like a new form of disaster capitalism isn't it yeah remind remind us what that word means again disaster capitalism yeah it's another phenomenon like what happened in puerto rico with uh, hurricane maria and uh, haiti and other places where 
once a natural phenomenon or something like war also happens to a place or city that destroys it, capitalists will see that as fertile ground to start from scratch and pass new policy in ways that would not have been done before because they said, hey, your whole place was destroyed. You need my money. You do things my way. Let's get rid of public education and put charter schools and, uh, and yeah. stuff like that. I think... Your Hurricane Katrina was another one. Yeah, I think just like smart cities, gentrification happens differently in different places. Because I think sometimes it can be a big development project that says, hey, this, you know, this area is ripe for redevelopment and I've got an idea to build a condo here and also, you know, a shiny new co-working space. And someone just comes in and like says, I'm going to buy this land, I'm going to get rid of this council housing, kick everyone out. And it's, like you said, very deliberate. And I think sometimes it can be very gradual and a slow process that happens when housing prices are changing and people move into an area thinking, oh, I can afford this area. And then they bring with it their own wishes, demands, changes to a neighborhood make those changes without taking care for what the neighborhood already is and those changes happen very very gradually sometimes until a place is really changed and is no longer comfortable for the people who already lived it and also we're talking about all of this without using like the word race at all and i think that seems like a mistake because generally what we're actually talking about is white people moving in to neighborhoods and changing them. We've seen race as a component forever. I mean, the word colonization was not used lightly when I used it because it is a racial, political uh, component of this whole thing of who has less power. It's also influenced by that intersection of race and, and space. The The one thing, okay, so we, we've talked about smart cities and, you know, new businesses, new amenities, new things. Uh, I want to touch a little bit about other forms of, of digital infrastructure that's kind of a component or a mechanism of gentrification. And side note to talk about Airbnb and the commodification of space, of private space. And I, I thought about it in terms or in relation to gentrification because uh, something that I'm familiar with here in Vancouver of uh, all of a sudden some neighborhoods have you can see people walking around with suitcases and you're like, wait a second, the neighbor's house used to be a house with a few rooms that, you know, students would live in. Now the person is running it basically like a hotel because they can make a hundred dollars a day um, instead of, you know, a few hundred a month uh, for renting it to people. So it's interesting for me to notice how Airbnb and the so-called sharing economy, which is a com an entire different episode probably as a mechanism of this process of commodification of spaces and yeah and just milking it yeah i think okay so we we kind of had this conversation uh, offline once before and i wonder like if you have more thoughts because i'm still questioning when you have projects that are called things like regeneration or urban renewal like i hear about them all the time in the uk especially like in northern cities uh where i'm sort of semi from as someone who moved a lot I kind of like half identify as being northern 
And sometimes, like, my family tell me, like, really excitedly about projects that are happening, and they're like, yeah, they're building a museum here and, like, new hotels, and it's it's going to really, like, help this neighborhood that's, like, ever since the collapse of coal mining or the steel industry or whatever it is, hasn't really had anything. And they're like, yeah, this is going to bring renewal. And I was chatting to someone recently from Sheffield and was saying, like, you know, okay, so there's all these projects in Sheffield, like, I've heard about them like really positively recently, like, oh, this neighborhood's like, it's got repainted and they've done new fronts to the building, so it looks pretty. And I was like, well, that that sounds harmless, you know? So, so, so was anyone harmed in it? And he was like, oh, yeah, definitely. And I'm like, oh. He's like, oh, yeah, because it raised all the prices and, um, you know, so people couldn't afford to live in that building anymore. And they've had to, like, move further out. And now, like, new people have moved in. And it's displaced people. And I was just like, hmm. Like, is it is it possible to have a project like that and not have it displace people? I like, think so. It seems to always happen, though. Like, it seems like every time you hear someone say, like, this is going to be great, it's going to really help the city. And then as soon as you start investigating, a bit like Sidewalk Labs, like, it came with all these great announcements, like, oh, yeah, they're going to build this incredible smart city on the waterfront. And then you investigate. It's just, like, there must be projects. I mean, I'm really... I'm just kind of sidestep a moment but like I'm really interested in community-owned business at the moment I'm like quite fascinated by this phenomenon that I'm seeing in lots of places like community-owned pubs and that kind of thing like can't you have community-owned renewal the community decides we're going to repaint the front of this building yeah well I'm going to rescue one thing that you said just now a key word here is harm and I don't think if if the key question is did people get harmed in the process of this? If the answer is yes, then it was not renewal. It was not regeneration. It was just disaster capitalism. So some people were considered disposable. Uh, the culture of the space was considered disposable enough to paint it over. Um, so that's one thing. And it, it's very easy to, to just say like, oh yeah, community owned and, and this thing. I mean, when you have sectors of the population who are overworked, underpaid, or unemployed um, because of systemic circumstances, it is really hard just to be like, well, just own your own pub. But I think it's, I mean, that's, I would want to believe that's the role of government, uh, which means our role as people and citizens to ensure that these so-called regeneration projects cause no harm. I don't know. It's it, that's the difference, yeah. right? Is, is this harm or is this vulture capitalism? I mean, I think capitalism just almost like we've used it, or I've used it so much in this conversation that it's almost losing its meaning and or its terrifying implications. But it's consumption of each other, and it's um, basically just turning people and spaces into commodities. It kind of pushes us to dehumanize someone. It's like, oh, your culture, your family has no value, shush, out of here. Because in my opinion, city change should be for the good of the people in the city, right? Like, logically, what you do is you say, what do the people who live here need? What do the people who live here want? And then you do that. And I'm making things sound very simple, and I'm not an urban planner, but that there seems like it should be possible to have projects that say there are issues in this town. For instance, a lot of places, you know, refer to this thing, the death of the high street. You know, lots of shops being closed, no way for you to shop, creates a lot of other issues and unemployment. You know, that is a real issue. 
So there have to be solutions that can come from within that community that are not just, well, what we're going to do is we're going to destroy this building, build a really fancy wall and put it on Airbnb. Well, and it's similar to conversations going around like the death of the gay bar. Um, there are a few really cool projects going around the internet uh, who are mapping gay bars that used to be and are no longer around. I know in Vancouver that's an issue. Like there's just few. There's not a single lesbian bar here. Um, there used to be, but just and you know there's always the, this question of like did Grinder and did apps kill the gay bar? Hmm. And it's it's an interesting question because it's not a single issue problem. Um, of course, apps and things are great. That's not the only reason why people are not going to bars. It's really expensive to live in the city. It's really expensive to run a bar. And I mean, lesbians, <laughs> two women make less than two men. But um, I mean, just generalizations here. Uh, it, yeah, so it's you start looking at the economics of spending money and creating space and who is afforded to to run a business for a while and to not scale and to, you know, just create this community. And, and so did the app skill the gay bar? And not entirely. Uh, and but I would not blame it on apps. But that's another another way of like the digital is kind of affecting space. Yeah. Or said to be affecting space. Also, one thing that this whole thing that you're mentioning about community-owned things, this is not new, but like in the 60s and 70s, and people who are familiar with like sp space and urban urbanism probably already know about this, but like this whole concept of the right to the city that came up in the 60s and 70s. What was the name of that guy? Henri Lefebvre. Uh, I, I actually. Moses? Hmm? Robert Moses? In New York? No. Lefebvre, the, the French guy. Oh. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Tell the me the 60s. story. And then, well, I, I learned about this through a more contemporary one, who's David Harvey from the UK. And they're basically just this whole thing of like, this whole idea that the cities embody politics, right? Embody the people. So there has to be this notion of the right to the city, which is not only the right to access the city, but also access the services and have a say on how those things are conducted. So it's not just you going to a space and accessing services, it's you going to a space and having the right to decide over how, those, how that space operates. And I think this this notion has been sort of like not been rescued but it has been uh used as a basis for some other like social movements basically demanding like literally like the right to the city is a human right which means the right over the space around you and the right over how that space is run and governed so it's it's a really cool idea because it kind of goes back to that of like cities are not spaces that people go into cities are the space and the people in it Yeah, you cannot separate those two. And that's why when we talk about gentrification, the second you're separating the people and they're like, oh, displacement, then that's destruction. Yeah, no, I, I think you're spot on. I think that is what fascinates me about some of these community owned businesses is is the same attitude, right? Like it's people saying we don't own this. Like no one, no one can own this pub. I, I spoke to someone who is like the landlord, I guess, but they're not landlords like 
behind the manager? bar, the manager, the manager, that's the one, at a community-owned pub. And they said this thing to me about how no one can own a pub, like pubs can't be owned by someone. They belong to the community, and they belong to the space in which they're in. And I found that really inspiring, and I've basically been thinking about it ever since. And he also said the same thing about many stuff. He said it's the same true of bookshops. He was like, a community, a bookshop in a community belongs to the community, even if it isn't on paper community-owned. And these are just, these are all community assets. And I just, I really like that concept. And it reminds you that you do have an ownership of your space. And just to like another curveball here is like, take all of these concepts that we've been discussing, you know, like the right to the city, the right to have a say on how the space moves around you and apply it to the internet. Because when you start thinking about space as a site where people come together to be and develop as people, humans, and society, the internet sort of fits that concept, of course, with a lot less physicality. So I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking, if you start thinking of the internet as a, as a site, as a space, you start realizing that's like privately owned, where are your rights? And if your body is also comprised of data, if data is an extension of your body, you start thinking a lot about like the autonomy of your body in, in space, digital or otherwise. So this is just food for thought. Like, yep, think about it. And yeah, just I mean, it basically comes back around to episode one, because we're always back at consent again, where we talked about that, where like what happens to you online is a thing that happens to your body. Like you said, if you feel something by what you see online then you feel that in your body then it is affecting you this idea that like your body exists even when you're accessing apps or whatever like it's just it's just more and more true i mean i think i think the whole thing with a lot of smart city stuff is the lines are ever blurring it's like mind exploding emoji yeah this episode is brought to you by mind exploding emoji mind exploding emoji it's the the only emotion i can feel right now (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So what else? I mean, I haven't mentioned the uh, in-link boxes, which I was going to kind of segue into from uh, Toronto, which was the the Sidewalk Labs project we have over here. So what... Is it is it run by the same, by Sidewalk Labs? So it's interesting because in no way did they appear to have the Sidewalk Labs logo or branding anywhere. They actually have British Telecom mm-hmm. logos on them, but they're mm-hmm. actually made and designed by sidewalk labs as well. They're very, very subtle. Interesting. They are they are quite removed from it here. Like that, there's layers of affiliation. Um, I can put. Okay, so can you tell me first what are these yeah, things? Yeah, let's start. Let's, let's go back to the start. Um, they're basically like black monoliths in the street, like the one in like space exactly odyssey, exactly like of. space odyssey, right? They're like sleek yeah. and tall and thin and black, um, except they have a screen on them with adverts. And also, right. and, and we're the monkeys looking at. Yep. Um, so mostly, they're a digital advert screen, but on the side of them, in that thin, sleek part, they actually have a phone and a phone charging thing and a little screen where you can like access the internet. I think. Um, but yeah, they have Wi-Fi on them, so free free Wi-Fi, of course. And I I do see people using them to charge their phones in the street, which I just always like, wow, fascinating. Like, uh, because when they were being installed, I was like, no one's going to stand in the street and charge their phone. Like, that just, that's weird. But nope, 
I've seen it. I see it every yep. so often. Yeah, so they are apparently really great things because, you know, all of the stuff is for free. They're just paid for by being advertising stands. But what's interesting is they have these in New York as well, like also in link boxes, where they have more surveillance capabilities. That There's an interesting thing about the difference between London and New York. The ones in New York have cameras on them, and ours have the cameras, but don't have the cameras switched on. Okay. Yeah, so they got planning permission for them as communications infrastructure. In a lot of places, that is basically a smoother process for approval. If you're just putting in a piece of infrastructure, then if you're putting in something that would have like cameras or other capabilities, so they've currently installed them to be this infrastructure plus adverts with a bunch of other sensors that are built in because they were designed by Sidewalk Labs, but owned by British Telecom, who say they haven't switched on all these other sensors. So... Head exploding emoji again. So again with like the transparency and the questions and so many of these projects, it's like, okay, but what are you going to do next? Yeah, I mean, the the infrastructure of surveillance is, is set up. Exactly. It's like and a switch, flick away. I mean, the thing is, we already have so much bloody surveillance in the UK. There's part of me that's like, what's one more thing? Even if it is Wi-Fi tracking that can tag your phone, you know, and then because once you've connected to the BT Wi-Fi network, then, you know, you're connecting to, like, a set of those monoliths in link boxes and then they can track you around London. But we have so many surveillance cameras, it's like, that that's London. One question I even have about smart cities, and like, how much people talk about it as being new, and all these like, new things that they're introducing, it's, it's not though, because a lot of this stuff is that we've had massive levels of surveillance in London for a really long time, and you know, someone else pointed out that stop and search powers by the police are really just another layer of of that. Like, now we have stop and search your phone on the street. What? Yeah, police can stop and ask to see your phone. And what are they going to look into there? Just if you're drug dealing? I don't get it. Yeah, but like, there are a lot of reports that people, young people are saying that the police now like ask to look at their phone when wow. they stop them on the street. And at some point, we really need to look into digital citizenship and, and data and rights. I was, lit- I was literally thinking about this earlier. And I was, I was reading some, a survey of Canadians, actually, around what they think about um, the use of their data in physical spaces. And it said that 69% don't want their data being used to create targeted ads. But I was thinking about the fact that, obviously that's still quite a lot of people who do a lot of people who are okay with this and i found campaigning against surveillance in the uk honestly a lot of people are fine with their privacy being invaded and i've said this before i mean i also think that there is so much privilege that for a lot of people they won't feel any harms right and we have to accept that that for some people like the harm is real that your human rights have been invaded and your human rights have been broken, but that they won't necessarily feel like it's damaged their life. And so then they feel like it doesn't matter to other people. And right. as the point of the podcast is, some things seem fine to you 
the general you, and some things actually affect specific people really badly. And that's the case with privacy on like all of these different issues that we talk about. Yeah, it's uh, I one of the things that I wish or that I hope for like media storytelling, which is not, it's, I mean, look at Twitter, it's not working. But like all of this exposure to one another is I hope that at some point we get to a point where we can see the world around us in like parallel from parallel perspectives and understand exactly what you said which is like just because it doesn't affect me personally or that much doesn't mean that someone in a different position or circumstance um, wouldn't have their lives at risk because of this like quite literally I mean I, I think we or I sometimes sound very catastrophic about this but it's like for a lot of these things it's life or death um, anything else I wanted to talk about bats damn it <laughs> Okay, tell me about bats, because I really like bats. Okay. Points I, to bat tattoo. I want to say... I do have a bat tattoo. Did you know that? I didn't know you had a bat tattoo. What? It's on my belly. We can't show the podcast people this is an audio medium. <laughs> yeah, correct. Um, I'll flash you some other time. <laughs> I, I like wanted to also say that like there are genuinely some things that fall under this category of smart city that I like. And I also think... The, the term smart city is bullshit and most of the time we're just talking about tech in a city, right? Yeah. Like, it's a propaganda term. Yeah, the smart thing is just a marketing ploy. Yeah, like, it's just urban technology. Like, it could be literally, literally everything, let's be honest. So this thing that I'm going to tell you about, I have seen, I would never have considered being a smart city thing, but I'm excited by it. And it's bat sensors. Tell me. So there are, there are devices installed in one of our parks, in Queen Elizabeth Park, for people who want to find out more and live in London and like bats, that detect from the, uh, oh God, sonar waves, which kind mm. of bats are in the park and at what times, and then connect, like gather that data from all around the park and you can use it to tell you like bigger pictures about biodiversity and the health of the environment and all of that data is open data and you can access it on like smart london website and you can see in real time like where bats are and just like enjoy i'm like no one is harmed by that that's not personal data it's not surveillance data it's only gathering data on bats i mean i know the bats didn't consent yeah i was gonna say but like <laughs> come on now i think that's cool that's cute ever since i went on a bat walk which was amazing it's like yeah. where you go around and you have your own little bat sensor and it makes like <laughs> noises ah. um yeah that's like the sound that like it translates for you and then the people who gave us the the walk and talk told us how these different kinds of like clicking noises are translated from the noises that the bats make into different different noises for us so that we can tell which kind of bats they are so we're like oh well this kind of like high pitched noise that means it's a pipistrelle that's flying over and then that's so cute you can use it to kind of tell which direction it's flying and you look over and you see all the bats and i think that's nice see it's just just a bit of nice technology yeah i mean that's another thing that we always i feel always a, a little bit of an obligation here is like this podcast is not just like a pair of luddites just being like bring down tech it's more like let's think about the implications of this and be aware of the risks so we can also use the beautiful tools that we have to build awesome things um yeah yeah like i said like the co2 emissions measuring 
Honestly, I think that's really important. And again, in London, that data is all open data and it can be used by environmental campaigners to raise awareness and to actually like look at that and say, here's how bad this is. This is why we need to change our cars that we're using. Like, mm-hmm. I think there is a lot of really interesting data gathering. I am not against it. I'm really just against it when it's personal data and those kind of more like environmental things. I, I actually think are really interesting and powerful. Tech is just a tool like a hammer, right? Can be used to smash or to build stuff. Although it also kind of embodies the hitting politics. Anyways, never mind. Um, yeah, amazing. <laughs> Tangents. Well, I don't know. There's so much, so much stuff. We Of course, we cannot begin to even cover this whole theme in just, you know, 15 minutes of podcast or or so we've missed uh we had jane jacobs on on the notes we had you know what's the concept of a feminist city we did we did touch a little bit about that with the nightmares and and just whose values are embedded into city planning and things like that but it's some really cool concepts to think about yeah yeah we talked a little bit about big companies having almost like government level power with the Olympics and FIFA, but we also saw this with Amazon and their HQ bid that had cities around North America competing to to give this humongous company, Amazon, uh, a bunch of tax breaks so they could move their headquarters yeah. to their cities. Let's give the richest um, man in the world even more money. Yeah. Hmm. So so yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff. So listeners, we really want to hear from you. Let us know. Um, what angle of the built environment or the city or the community space and technology it's interesting to you we want to hear about this because so much it's everywhere literally all around us unless you live in the countryside i guess in which case it would be interesting how you're being quantified (laughs) yeah we should do a separate one where we talk about tech and the country and talk about farms. Ooh. Free ideas out here. Yep, yep. Anyways, shall we wrap up? Yeah, I think so. Perfect. Well, Ruth, what have you... (laughs) (laughs) What are you taking away with you in this episode? (sighs) There is so much. It was so much fun for me. Yeah. Yeah, what was... I think for me, if I'm going to... I, I almost want to cheat and say that I really liked the entire episode because I had so much fun. <laughs> but I, is that a cop-out? I'm really struggling. There was something that you said that I was like, oh my god, that's really interesting. And I always, I need to write down what you say. Oh yeah, wait, the city and like the right to the city. Right. I think, I think the thing that I am taking away and want to think more about is the concept of our own ownership of space and our right to the city. I think it's really interesting because a lot of the time I don't feel an ownership of space. I feel like I'm in a space that's owned by the corporates and the governments around. And I I think like to, to kind of get real here for a moment, as someone who moved house a lot and has kind of struggled with the concept, as I mentioned, of being from somewhere or like having a home, I really like the idea of claiming a space and saying like I own it and I live here and this is like an I am part of this community because of not having grown up in one consistent place I really want to feel like yeah I own this city like I live in London and it is a place I love and actually care a lot about and yeah I want I want to claim some ownership of it and yeah uh, 
Yeah. I, want, I want to you, think about you are you are London. I um, I am London. Wow. Yeah, I mean not only you but your partner. Yeah, no, I think that's super interesting. I need to check out the writer that you mentioned. Good book, Rebel Cities, and I think I'll find the paper. I will probably link it because it's obviously also a paper. Um, what am I taking? I think I really like the idea of cities and spaces being conceived of with people in it. I think usually we just get the ideas of cities and city planning as just built environment but like you have to i mean not we let's see i know city planners do consider people or, or should at least but you cannot uncouple who lives in a space with the space itself which i hear a lot of conversations do when we talk about gentrification it's just the built environment and you know but you have to consider people embedded in space um, as as part of that space and space as part of that people so like you are as much London as I am this city as well and when you start thinking about people you also start looking at really cool um, examples of resilience because it's like resilience and resistance like wh wherever there's people and wherever there's communities we talked about the queers about racialized people about immigrants um, you see like really cool ways of making space and place that start happening yeah looking at that and i really i never i don't feel 100 percent comfortable saying like look at the margins because it's usually not at the margin it's at the core of a city where all of these communities are creating the culture and the space and right it's not the margin it is the city itself so yeah i like thinking about that kind of this help me connect those dots so thank you for that yeah thank you gosh there's like so much to think about i honestly god i could just dive into this topic forever me too and we probably will stay tuned for cities part 500 let's wrap it up um this has been the intersection of things your favorite feminist internet podcast in the world <laughs> sorry for putting this words in your head listener um you can find all of our stuff at the intersection of things.com and on twitter at things intersect what else ruth where can you be found? i can be found at nescient n-e-s-i-e-n-t on twitter and you can find me at undazed and such please communicate in gif format and you know whilst we're talking you should probably give us a review like, you should really definitely give us a review on iTunes. Only if it's good. Yeah, only good reviews, um, but I'm sure only good reviews are what we deserve. <laughs> yep. It helps us out, help us find, helps other people find us, makes us look awesome, and it would make us feel good. We, we want to feel nice feelings. And of course, if you really like the podcast, recommend it to a friend. Uh, David Mark Hucklesby, thank you for the music. Yeah, I guess, I guess we're saying goodbye now. Thank you. Bye. And see you next time, listeners. Bye. Or listen to you. Okay, anyways. Bye.